welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. Thank you for joining us for the Saints Podcast on the Mormon Channel. Our show is all about a new narrative history of the Church called Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with me. First, a Ph.D. historian and writer with the Church History Library, Lisa Olson-Tate. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Ben. We also have uh, Sarah Eyring joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about the first chapter of Saints. So our last episode, we talked about why we're doing this new history. Well, this time we're going to dive in. And we're going to discuss what happened in chapter one. And uh, chapter one begins with a bit of a bang, doesn't it, Sarah? Yeah, literally, a literal bang. It starts with the eruption of a volcano, which is a part of the Joseph Smith story that I would never have known about if I hadn't read about it in this narrative. Do you know very much about it? Could you tell us what that had to do with the setting of this story? Well, I think it's more about setting the backdrop for the putting the events in motion that bring the Smith family to be where they are when Joseph undergoes his spiritual seeking. And it's too simplistic, I think, to say that God made a volcano blow up so that the Smith family would move. Mm-hmm. But it is a very interesting backdrop to help explain and place them in the larger setting of of the world at the time. And why did that have any effect on where they lived? Well, the effects from this volcanic eruption were felt throughout the world. It actually affected the climate in a way that caused crops to fail and all kinds of disasters and turmoil related to the weather. And the way that that affected the Smiths particularly was that they lived through this summer, year without a summer, I think it was, in 1816. And they had already had so many financial troubles and economic setbacks. And with the failure of their crops that year, it was just kind of the final straw that they knew they were not going to make it in Vermont. And so they had to look west for a better setting. Let's listen to just a little clip uh, for, for our listeners who may not have read the chapter yet to give you a little flavor for uh, how the book begins. On April 5th, after decades of slumber, the mountain roared awake, coughing up ash and fire. Hundreds of miles away, witnesses heard what sounded like cannon fire. Small eruptions continued for days. Then, on the evening of April 10th, the whole mountain exploded. Three fiery plumes shot skyward, merging into one massive blast. Liquid fire flowed down the mountainside, enveloping the village at its base. Whirlwinds raged through the region, pulling up trees and sweeping away homes. So I loved what you said, Lisa, that it's too simplistic for us to say, you know, God didn't make this happen so he could get the Smiths to move. Um, I've heard Steve Harper say, knowing the calamities that were about to befall man, he brought forth the word through his prophet Joseph. So God knew this would happen. Um, and 
and uh, the Smiths do move, in part because of the year without a summer. What were the other reasons that, that they moved away? You kind of alluded to that earlier. Why were they needing to move west? Well, since they married, uh, Joseph Sr. and Lucy Max Smith had moved around a lot, kind of within this small area within Vermont and New Hampshire. And they had struggled to make a living. They had had some business failures. They'd had difficulty with farming. It had just kind of been one setback after another. It's kind of an interesting um, illustration of how sometimes the trials and the, the setbacks that we experience in life really can lead us forward in ways that we don't fully understand at the time. So they decide to make the move, um, assume there's property available, there's, there's places they can go to. Yeah, in fact, uh, some of Joseph Smith Sr.'s family had already moved to New York. And so they did have some connections in that area. So it's Joseph Sr. goes ahead yeah. um, to procure land <clears throat> and, and get things ready. Um, and Lucy's kind of left to do the moving. Yeah, she has eight kids, and she's got to pack everything up and travel, and it's a long distance. They're traveling, I think, during the winter, aren't they? Mm -hmm. That was actually quite common. Winter, in some ways, was easier to travel because the ground was frozen as opposed to traipsing through mud and, and such. And during the summer, they needed to be working their farms. So winter was an opportune time of year for people to move even though it was cold and carried challenges of its own. So she hired this man, Mr. Howard, who was supposed to drive them and help get them and all of their stuff to New York safely. And he turned out, as she tells the story, to be a bit of a scoundrel. This is one of my favorite moments, actually, in the whole book. Um, I love this moment with Lucy. Um, and let's just let's just listen to what happens. So, kind of setting the scene here, Mr. Howard has basically dumped all their stuff in the street, and he's about to make off with their wagon and their horses. Right. So this is not a good guy. <laughs> this is right. A, a, and she says he'd already uh, gambled and drank away the money that she oh paid no. him. Right. Yeah. So here's here's what we see from the book. Lucy found the man in a bar. As there is a God in heaven, she declared, that wagon and those horses, as well as the goods accompanying them, are mine. She looked around the bar. It was filled with men and women, most of them travelers like her. This man, she said, meeting their gaze, is determined to take away from me every means of proceeding on my journey, leaving me with eight little children utterly destitute. Mr. Howard said that he had already spent the money she paid him to drive the wagon, and he could go no farther. I have no use for you, Lucy said. I shall take charge of the team myself. She left Mr. Howard in the bar and vowed to reunite her children with their father come what may. Sarah, what did you think about, uh, about Lucy's reaction? I thought that she was very brave and very courageous, and it sounds like she's just the woman to get this sort of job done. You know, she's going to face, this is the first of probably, or not the first, I'm sure she's faced many challenges in her life, but it's the beginning of the restoration of the church in which she will face more challenges as the mother of the prophet. But I just thought this was 
incredibly um, inspiring. She had a lot of strength and um, a lot of courage to say, all right, I'm going to get the job done. And she does. She totally succeeds. And that kind of gives you a glimpse, I think, into the type of mother that she was, the type of faithful disciple that she was, and the the type of um, strong, courageous woman that she was. Do you know any Lucy's, Lisa? I mean, in your, in your life, have you known, do you, oh. do you sort of picture a woman that you know that fills this yeah. same role? Yeah. There are a lot of Lucy's. These were, these were women who you know, they they lived difficult lives or lives that to us seem like they would have been extremely challenging and just all of the odds that they faced and the physical challenges that they had to confront. And these were not, you know, women in pretty dresses and their hair curled and sitting doing embroidery. <laughs> these were women who worked and who sacrificed and who just confronted life head on in the way that you see Lucy doing. And when they knew what they were doing was right, then they had all the strength and courage that they needed to press forward and face whatever obstacles were in their way. I, I, love, I love those stories and I love um, just how Lucy has this strength and, and she's pretty spunky. Like she's yeah. just not going to put up with any, you know, and this is a this is an interesting example from Lucy's history, which is one of the major sources that we have for, um, well, it's the only source we have in many cases for these stories about Joseph Smith's early life and some of the early events in the Restoration, where Lucy stands up and shows her own fortitude and her spunkiness and her courage and um, her irrepressible personality and it's really delightful. Yeah, it, it totally is. Her her faith and her just optimism, mm. a trust are just mm. irrepressible. You know, fortitude, like, determination, yeah, all of those. I love it. That that reminds me of another story we learn um, from this same source. And many members and others will be familiar with it, and that is Joseph Smith's leg surgery. Um, we, we probably often have told it in, in primary because this is one of the few stories we have of Joseph as yeah. a child. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that story and what we learn. Um, there's a topic associated with this chapter where readers can go and learn more. Um, what happened with, with Joseph's leg surgery? Why is it a big deal? Well, like you say, it's one of the only stories that we have from Joseph's childhood, and so that makes it significant all by itself. I think it's a significant story for showing us some dynamics within the Smith family, for showing the way that they cared for each other and had these really tight, close bonds in the family. Um, I can't remember how much it talks about it in the chapter, but as Lucy tells the story, she talks about Hiram, um, kind of nursing Joseph and putting pressure on his leg to make it feel better and sitting up with him. And you just get the sense that this whole family came together to help nurse this sick child. And little Joseph really suffered with an abscess, I guess we would call it, that first was up 
higher in his body, up in his shoulder area, I think, and then moved and settled into his leg and just became excruciatingly painful. Oftentimes when this story is told, um, we, we talk about the surgery. Probably our, some of our listeners will not have learned or understood that this was a big deal financially. Yeah. For the Smiths. It's not yeah. like they had urgent care they could run right. to and it was, you know, covered by Medicaid or something. Right. And and medical care in general at this time was extremely primitive. And the fact that there was this doctor in the area who had this kind of revolutionary or at least a, a new approach to treating this particular problem was providential to say the least. Um but engaging that kind of medical care was not cheap. And for a family like the Smiths, who were constantly on the edge of financial desperation, the, the costs that they incurred in treating these illnesses, and Joseph wasn't the only one that was sick. His sister Sophronia also was extremely ill during this time. That represented a real hardship for them that... Uh, was part of their ongoing financial struggle and decline. So we also have a story that I think probably any primary child has heard, and that is that during this painful surgery that Joseph refused alcohol. Right. Tell, tell us about that part of the story and maybe some of the misconceptions we might have about that. I think because of the subsequent history, both... In Lucy's mind, because she lived through the establishment of the Word of Wisdom and the temperance movement in the 19th century, and then because of how important the Word of Wisdom has become to us as Latter-day Saints, we tend to see this little detail where Lucy says that Joseph was offered some alcohol, and we should understand that that was the only form of anesthesia or sedative that was available at the time. Right. And so that would have been the motivation for offering it to him. And Lucy says that he rejected that and just said, no, if my father will stay with me and hold me, I'll be all right. I can get through this. And so we tend to magnify the importance of his refusal of alcohol because we look at it through the lens of how we think about the word of wisdom now. Right. And I think really in the context of the story, what's important is that illustration of his love and his trust in his father and the extreme closeness that he felt to his father. And that plays out and is illustrated in many other instances through uh, for the rest of Joseph Sr.'s life as Joseph is the prophet but um, has this love and respect for his father. But I think that's the important element of this story is that bond with his father. So once the Smiths move to Palmyra, what is the scene like for them? What is the um, sort of cultural goings-on, the religious goings-on? What's life like now that they've moved? Well, one thing to know about Palmyra is that it's close to the Erie Canal, which is just being completed around the time that the Smiths moved there and in the early years that they lived there. And this is a major 
economic and cultural development of the time. It was an artery for trade and for economic expansion, for travel. And so Palmyra is situated in this area where there's a lot happening. It's kind of up and coming. Um, in the decades following the American Revolution, there is a lot of excitement and change in the American religious landscape. One of the things that the Constitution did was what we call disestablishment. It, it did away with the idea of a state-sponsored church, mm. which was something that especially the New England colonists had brought over from England with them. With that done away, then the religious scene in the United States during this period has been likened to a marketplace where there are a lot of different voices, a lot of different ideas and beliefs and denominations that are competing for influence, for converts, for people to um, accept their views of religion. Wow. And so this is the context for young Joseph and for the Smith family as a whole being kind of caught up in these um, debates and controversies there's a there's a clip from the book that talks about uh, this moment of sort of religious confusion, this marketplace of religious ideas. Um, let's let's take a listen and hear what happens to Joseph. While attending a sermon, Joseph heard a minister quote from the first chapter of James in the New Testament. If any of you lack wisdom, he said, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Joseph went home and read the verse in the Bible. Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine, he later remembered. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. That was a new detail for me. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that Joseph had heard the first, you know, James chapter 1, verse 5 um, in a sermon. Yeah, I do think that that will be a new detail for a lot of people. Joseph didn't just sit down one day, open up the Bible, and magically land his finger on James chapter 1. It's a really good example, Ben, of how we have a lot of unexamined assumptions that we bring to our reading or to our understanding of a text. Joseph never said that that's what happened. Right. But it kind of is an easy thing to imagine. But we need to remember that we're imagining that, and then that's not in the text. That's not what Joseph says. Actually, according to a family reminiscence, it was a scripture that he had heard at, at some of these revivals. And we know that this was a scripture that, uh, that the preachers liked to quote at that time. They didn't necessarily um, advocate taking it in the direction Joseph took it. Right. <laughs> or taking it as far as he took it. And so it sounds like maybe the whole family was looking for the truth. Was that true? Or were some of yeah. them pretty settled about what they believed? No, it's a really it, it's a really interesting context for Joseph when you know about the religious background in his family. Both of his parents were deeply faithful religious people and both had spent many years searching and seeking after and longing for the truth as they 
hoped that they would find it. In the Joseph Smith Sr. family, there was a lot of skepticism about organized religion, as we would say it today. And he, he following the influence of his father, Asel Smith, he kind of kept himself aloof from religion, from churches. And he believed he'd, he'd had spiritual experiences, he'd had dreams and um, experiences that led him to believe that he would eventually find the truth, the, the true gospel, the, the truth as God uh, would reveal it to him, but he hadn't found it yet. And so as he watches this unfolding of all this religious controversy, he kind of remains separate. Lucy had been taught faith by her mother, and when she was a young woman, she also had some really significant spiritual experiences. So at the time that Joseph is a young man and these controversies are happening and they're going to these camp meetings and revivals and the, um, the various uh, gatherings that are going on, Lucy and some of the children join the Presbyterian Church which is one of the established churches there in Palmyra. So within Joseph's own family, and I think it's really important to understand this, that Joseph had seen his own family kind of divided on the subject of religion. And for him, seeking after the true church, seeking after the truth, was a matter of his own soul. It was a matter of his own salvation, and it was also a matter of putting his family together and of helping his whole family to be united in something that he knew was of eternal significance. That's pretty touching. And actually, when you when you talk about Lucy having, um, was she sick herself or was it that her sister was ill? There was an, there was an illness in that, yeah. she, that she hoped would be healed. Um, and I think she was desperate for that healing. And so it prayed to Heavenly Father, you know, that she could live or that her sister could live and that they would find it, hope that they could find the truth while they were here, here on earth. Yeah. And I think that there was a revelation to her that she would, she would find, she would have the truth in her lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of interesting um, in that story and in, in all of these stories told that there's some time that passes between yeah. some of the promises that heavenly father offers and then their fulfillment or their recognition by the people who are, are given those promises. And I, think it is sort of encouraging for those of us who are feeling like we're waiting on promises that we know that Heavenly Father, of course, does always follow through, but um, but it's hard to have faith sometimes. Yeah. One of, the, one of the phrases I love uh, in, in the book that helps me understand what it was like is this phrase that Joseph says, um, I wanted to feel and shout like all the rest. Um, but for Joseph, it wasn't real. Like he didn't, he just wasn't feeling that. And uh, I, as you describe that, you know, he, he's got family members that evidently have felt some, they've felt something enough to go and join a church or to hold back. And Joseph's kind of stuck in the middle. Yeah. And when you read Joseph's accounts of himself at this time, you get the sense of this young boy who is a very deep thinker. And Lucy said he wasn't that much of a reader, but he was a very deep thinker. And it speaks to a remarkable something within him that he could watch all of this excitement and controversy and discussion. He felt that it was really important, 
but he had an integrity within himself that he was looking for something real. He was looking for the truth. And he wasn't going to just go along with what was popular. He wasn't going to just go along with what everyone else thought he should feel or think. And that's not to say that whatever his family experienced was, you know, his mother or others, that it, that it wasn't genuine or, right, or right. heartfelt on their part. But just that Joseph was different. And he felt that from an early age, I think, felt that he stood apart in some way. And he's he's about to stand apart even more because uh, as we're going to find out in our next episode, as we talk about chapter two, um, it's going to be one of the most significant moments in his life um, and one of the most significant events in, in the history of the world, the, the, the beginning of the restoration with the first vision. So... I would just invite our listeners to join us again next time as we talk about chapter two of Saints. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa and Sarah. As always, I appreciate your comments and invite our listeners out there to learn more about Saints at saints.lds.org. They can also read in the Gospel Library app, and you can get this podcast and many others at themormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. See you next time.